Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, May 19th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's top stories. Italy faces its worst flooding in nearly 100 years. Montana completely bans TikTok. World leaders push for a Russia-Ukraine peace deal. Russia agrees to extend the Black Sea grain deal. Turkey's opposition questions the fairness of Sunday's election. The U.S. Supreme Court dismisses two social media liability cases. Telecom giant BT announces plans to cut 55,000 jobs by 2030. Sources say DeSantis will formally enter the 2024 presidential race next week. A study finds that global warming is set to break 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2027. And an injectable HIV prevention drug will be made in South Africa for the first time. In our first story, at least 13 are dead and 20,000 homeless in a flooding in Italy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Reuters, Forbes, and CNN. As of Thursday, at least 13 people have been killed and 20,000 displaced as Italy experiences its worst flooding in nearly a century. Torrential rain in Italy's northern Emilia-Romagna region has triggered floods and landslides, with some regions having received half their average annual rainfall in only 36 hours, leading rivers to burst their banks and flood surrounding towns and farmland. The flooding has reportedly seen at least 23 rivers overflow, impacting over 48 towns and resulting in at least 280 landslides so far. The areas hardest hit by the flooding have been Bologna, with 15 floods and over 40 mudslides, Ravenna, with 13 floods and nearly 90 mudslides, and Flori Cessna, with 12 floods and over 100 mudslides. Before the floods, Emilia-Romagna and other areas of northern Italy were impacted by a severe drought that dried out the land, which reduced its capacity to absorb water. The region is under a red alert, the highest level warning or state of emergency for life-threatening weather events, and 600 firefighters have been deployed from across Italy to assist with emergency evacuations. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have narrative spins on this story, starting with Narrative A from The Guardian. Italy is a country that is particularly vulnerable to climate change, and these recent extreme weather events go to show just how deadly the effects of global warming are. These extreme weather events are just going to get worse, and the government needs to step up and prepare for them. And here's Narrative B from Financial Times. While the impacts of these floods are tragic, there's no evidence that climate change is to blame, as these types of catastrophes are usually influenced by a myriad of factors that have nothing to do with it. More research is needed before we can establish any direct causal link between the two. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict that there's a 50% chance that the total damage incurred by climate change during the 21st century will be at least 8.84% of the world GDP. Melissa, there are areas of the world that are too hot that in the event of a, a climate change will get hotter. There are areas that are too cold that will warm up. But if I would be most worried if I was somewhere like Italy with that perfect Mediterranean climate right now, like don't change anything. Just leave it. Right. You know change is coming 
so you're going to start sweating. You know, when when I get the thermostat just right in my house, I don't touch it. I don't care if it feel, says it's too hot or too cold. I leave it. And Mediterranean climate, I mean, that's, it's oh, like yeah. almost cliche to say that you want a Mediterranean climate. It's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. So, okay. So in our new climate changed world, where is going to be the new Mediterranean climate? It might be like the Great Lakes or something, you know, like, oh, I'm in Milwaukee, <laughs> you know, I'm going to start. And, and they already have cheese there. I mean, it's, I'm seeing a lot of similarities. That I, yeah, I'm sorry. I laughed so hard. I do love Wisconsin and, and its people, but, um, <laughs> but that is pretty funny yeah. <laughs> to think of the Great Lakes as, as the Mediterranean think of all the huge, I mean, if you, I was just looking at a map while you're reading the story and, you know, Parma, Romagna, like all those delicious cheeses that we all love is all this area. Think of the giant wheels, like the $2,000 huge tires looking things of Parmesan being ruined in this flood. Oh man. Oh, just, just criminal mother nature. But you've made the cheese connection, Scott. You made the cheese connection. (laughs) I did. I did. That's one of Gene Hackman's worst movies, by the way. The cheese connection? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Montana passes a complete TikTok ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Reuters, NPR Online News, Forbes, Politico, and ABC News. Republican Governor Greg Gianforte on Wednesday signed a bill making Montana the first U.S. state to completely ban the social media app TikTok. Under this law, which will take effect January 1, 2024, Google and Apple's app stores will be forbidden from offering the short video app and could face fines of $10,000 per violation per day. Individuals who use the app, however, won't be penalized. John Forte accused the Chinese government of using TikTok to spy on Americans, violate their privacy, and collect their personal, private, and sensitive information. Although there's no concrete evidence China has done this through TikTok, which is owned by parent company ByteDance, under PRC law, the government could access this information. Previously, in December 2022, Montana joined the majority of states to ban TikTok from government devices. This ban comes while efforts to pass a bipartisan bill to put restrictions on TikTok and other apps owned by foreign countries have stalled in the U.S. Congress. TikTok cited the First Amendment in its criticism of the ban, with a spokesperson vowing the company will continue working to defend the rights of our users inside and outside of Montana. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with narrative A from CNN. With this ban, Montana is trampling on the Constitution and most notably the First Amendment. TikTok is an important source of expression and information gathering for thousands of Montanans, and denying U.S. citizens the right to use it is akin to making them live under a repressive regime. And Narrative B comes from the Daily Wire. TikTok is a major threat to national security, and it's up to officials in the U.S. to protect their constituents from surveillance by the Chinese Communist Party. Until ByteDance sells TikTok, the app will continue to rightfully face increased restrictions in Montana and beyond. But a sale to a U.S. company would solve this issue. And here's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's an 18% chance that TikTok will be sold to a U.S. entity before 2024. And there's another additional nerd narrative. This one says there's a 99% chance that Scott Wallace will not be moving to Montana before 2030. And that comes Ah. from the Melissa prediction community. Yeah, Montana, a two. 
I like Montana because their speed limit on their highways is like 95 miles an hour or something. Oh, yeah. Um, it, but it helps that it's just a straight line that you can see like 200 miles in every direction. That's right. Um, Big sky country. Yeah, exactly. But now with this TikTok thing, yeesh, at least I can drive through the state extra quickly to get back to my TikTok after, you know, when that's during right. that dead spot. That's yeah. right. No, I, I think Montana is a place people go where they're like, I don't really care for TikTok. I want to go uh, work with animals or, you know, be you out know. in nature. I like Montana. I mean, uh, proximal and uh, to uh, Yellowstone, but it's such a big state. It's I know people that live near Montana State University. I know people that live near the University of Montana, and neither of them are. It's not even close. It's it's like a day's drive away from each other. Mm, yeah, yeah, it is a really big state, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. Glacier National Park. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice place. World leaders push for a Russia-Ukraine peace deal. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Moscow Times, CNBC Africa, CNN, Seymour Hersh, and Yahoo News. As the Russia-Ukraine war approaches the 15th-month mark, leaders from across the world this week pushed for a diplomatic solution to bring the conflict to a close. On Tuesday, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa announced that both Russia and Ukraine had agreed to meet a group of African leaders consisting of his country, along with Senegal, Uganda, Egypt, the Republic of Congo, and Zambia, with the aim of seeking a political solution to the war. Commenting on the talks, Ramaphosa said that discussions with the two leaders revealed they were both ready for discourse about how this conflict can be brought to an end adding that a route towards settling the conflict would depend on the discussions that will be held. He also stated that the U.S. and the U.K. had expressed cautious support for the plan, while the U.N. had been briefed on developments. The news came as China's Li Hui, a former ambassador to Russia who was recently appointed Beijing's special envoy of its attempts to solve the conflict, met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and other senior officials on Tuesday and Wednesday. He will reportedly travel to Poland, France, Germany, and Russia as discourse continues. In his latest report, veteran investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch, citing U.S. intelligence officials, said that Poland was leading a group of countries including Hungary, Lithuania, Estonia, the Czech Republic, and Latvia in an effort to push Zelensky to find a solution. Hirsch reported, Poland has been quietly urging Zelensky to find a way to end the war, even by resigning himself if necessary, and to allow the process of rebuilding his nation to get underway. In the meantime, ahead of the next G7 summit that will commence in the Japanese city of Hiroshima on Friday, an EU official told Reuters that attendants are planning to discuss the possibility of an international peace summit on the Ukraine war. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-Ukraine narrative from Al Jazeera. Ukraine welcomes efforts to bring peace and stop Russia's aggression. However, Kyiv cannot accept any peace proposal that involves giving up its own territory or enabling Russia to pause the conflict just so that it can re-strengthen before enacting another strategic attack. And here's a pro-Russia narrative from TASS. There are many countries offering to mediate a peace settlement. Russia welcomes all initiatives aimed at bringing a resolution to the conflict as long as Russia's primary concerns that led it to embark on the special military operation are addressed. 
And we have another nerd narrative. The Metaculous community predicts that there's a 50% chance the size of Ukraine's army will be at least 250,000 as a result of ceasefire or treaty negotiations with Russia. You think there's some subtext, possibly not so sub, that having this uh, this summit in Hiroshima? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's got to be. All that yeah, nuclear threat going to a yeah. place that has experienced it firsthand. It's not just little... that they have like, you know, the, the, the newest convention center or something, I doubt. Yeah. Yeah. The, no, I, we were just talking about how the city of Hiroshima is uh, like completely recovered. I mean, the only thing that's still standing that you would, would recognize is they left a, a one building as a memorial. Um, oh. But like the little elementary school kids will come and there's a peace park surrounding this memorial and they all sing songs about peace. Uh, hmm. And it's adorable. Sounds amazing. And in a related story, Russia agrees to extend the Black Sea Grain Agreement. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Reuters, CBS, TASS, and the Associated Press. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan announced on Wednesday that the Ukraine Black Sea Grain deal was extended for two more months, just one day before Russia could have exited the agreement that allows Ukraine to ship grain across the Black Sea to other countries. Brokered by the UN and Turkey on July 22, 2022, the Black Sea deal aimed to bring Ukrainian grain and Russian food and fertilizer to countries struggling with food insecurity to break a disruption in supply and fight global food insecurity. The agreement was initially set for 120 days but was twice extended in November and March, despite objections from Russia. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the agreement was good news for the world, but added that outstanding issues remain regarding Russia's demands to continue the deal. Russia's foreign ministry warned the deal will expire in July unless the five goals of the Russia-UN memorandum are achieved, including Russia's state bank being reconnected to SWIFT, as well as the removal of sanctions and barriers hurting Russia's economy and businesses. Russia also criticized the deal for sending more grain to wealthier countries than to more needy ones. Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman said that a separate agreement aimed at facilitating shipments of Russian food and fertilizer has not been applied and problems must be resolved, quote, at the technical level. However, neither Moscow nor Erdogan has alluded to any concessions being granted to Russia. Global wheat prices fell after the extension was announced, and the Joint Coordination Center in Istanbul, which implements the agreement and is staffed by officials from Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, and the UN, authorized three ships to travel to Ukrainian ports for the first time in two weeks. Thank you for those facts, Scott, and we'll start these spins with a pro-Russia narrative from RT. Despite persistent sanctions and the West failing to uphold its end of the bargain, Russia has taken the moral high ground by agreeing to extend this deal. Meanwhile, the UN and Ukraine appear less interested in nations battling food insecurities, as most of the Ukrainian grain continues to go to wealthy countries that can in turn line Kiev's pockets. Foreign policy brings us the anti-Russia narrative. Russia's agreement to extend the Black Sea Initiative was no altruistic gesture to the hungry. It was a calculated decision by Moscow to appease its allies, mainly China, who benefit greatly from the pact. Russia tried to leverage starvation to gain concessions from the international community, but couldn't follow through with it for external reasons. 
any humanitarian motives by the Kremlin are suspect at best. Uh, a little bit of grain goes a long way. I started just making my own flour tortillas. And it takes mm. a little extra time, but man, it's so much better. Oh, my gosh. So there are certain things I don't even I mean, I'll eat them all the live long day, but like prepackaged whatever commercial tortillas, it doesn't even taste like the same thing. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's just like a different product. I, I would say that the difference between the, the delta between factory tortillas and the real thing is greater than the difference between bread and like real fresh baked bread. Like there's just nothing like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been it's so simple too. Just it's just flour, water, salt, and oil. That's so is it. that so when people talk about masa, that's corn, right? So you're yeah. you're making flour tortillas? Yeah, just because I, I got better flour. But yeah, right. I would I'd prefer the corn too. I, I mean they're both good. I like fresh. them both. I, I I mean, right, right. Either one made I my least favorite of all tortillas is a factory corn tortilla. That's, oh yeah, those you have are the to worst. heat those. Like you yeah. have to heat them, or they taste like paper. Yeah, and then I'll eat a whatever um, you know Mission brand flour tortilla. That's fine, you know. Like, yeah, w- whatever. I don't love it, but then either one of the other ones are so much better. I-, I love when you go to a you know a real Mexican restaurant and they have the person in like the little booth like smushing yeah. out the tortillas. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, th- those corn tortillas. Oh man. Life does not get better than that. So delicious. Gosh. We got to stop doing this podcast at dinner time. Turkey's opposition questions the fairness of Sunday's polls. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Financial Times, Al Jazeera, PBS NewsHour, and First Post. On Wednesday, Turkey's main opposition party said it had filed complaints over suspected irregularities over thousands of ballots in Sunday's election, in which President Recep Tayyip Erdogan performed better than expected. Muharrem Erkek, deputy chair of the Republican People's Party, or CHP, said the CHP had formally raised objections to over 2,269 ballot boxes for the presidential election, while conceding it would not change the overall results. In addition, Erkek claimed votes for Kalich Darolu were incorrectly allocated to Mukherem Ince, who pulled out of the presidential race three days before the vote and were eventually allegedly handed to Erdogan. While Erdogan's People's Alliance won a strong parliamentary majority, he received 49.5% of the vote in the presidential election, falling short of the 50% threshold needed to win outright. Compared to CHP leader Kemal Kilicdarolu's 44.9%. The May 28th runoff will now determine whether Erdogan, who has governed Turkey as either prime minister or president since 2003, will become the president for the third time, or if the country will take a different course, as promised by the Nation Alliance candidate Kilicdarolu. Turkey's election takes place as the country grapples with soaring inflation, a cost-of-living crisis, and the aftermath of devastating earthquakes. Thanks for that rundown of the facts, Melissa. Narrative A comes from Daily Sabah. The opposition camp is timidly crying rigged election to try to appease their voters, which have been deceived by unsupported claims that Kalich Darolu, who lost elections in the past, would outright win the presidential race against Erdogan as well as to avoid criticism for its foiled, unethical campaign. 
After Erdogan dominated the first round, it would not be surprising if his votes reached record levels in the runoff. First post brings us narrative B. Even though these irregularities may not have affected the final results, they are part of a broader effort to add fraud to the Turkish vote, directly or indirectly. Over and above Erdogan's nebulous actions in past elections, his government has changed electoral law in the run-up to this presidential contest to randomly select judges on the electoral board and allow ministers to run for parliament while in office. It's time for democracy to regain control of Turkish politics. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 77% chance that Recep Tayyip Erdogan will win the 2023 presidential election in Turkey. SCOTUS dismisses social media liability cases. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Washington Post, Al Jazeera, CBS, ABC News, and NPR Online News. In two U.S. Supreme Court decisions Thursday, Twitter v. Tomney and Gonzalez v. Google, the U.S. High Court ruled that social media companies don't need special protections to avoid liability for hosting terrorist content. U.S. relatives of Nawras Alasaf, a Jordanian man murdered during a New Year's Eve attack in Istanbul in 2017, sought damages from Twitter for providing what they argued was substantial assistance to an act of international terrorism that left Alasaf and 38 others dead. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals allowed the lawsuit to continue, though the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the plaintiffs failed to show that the companies gave such knowing and substantial assistance to ISIS that they culpably participated in the Reina attack. In the other case, the family of a 23-year-old college student murdered in a 2015 Paris attack asked that Google be held accountable for content posted by third-party users, such as messages, images, and videos, but the court declined to hear the case. After a lower court throughout the case, the Gonzalez family hoped the Supreme Court would take a look at Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and shrink the protections the law offers to tech companies for content posted by users. Citing little evidence tying Google to the Paris attack, the court declined to address the law. The 1996 communications law essentially treats web platforms the same way it treats telephone providers, who cannot be sued for what their speakers say while using their technology. Those were the facts, and here's the pro-establishment narrative from the ACLU. These decisions aren't just a win for tech companies, but for the concept of free speech as a whole. If companies had to worry about liability for every post that potentially incited violence, they would have to resort to widespread censorship of certain topics and speakers. The Internet is full of unimaginable amounts of speech, and it would be impossible and unethical for a corporation to curate the vast market of free expression. And the establishment critical narrative from Town Hall. Forget telecom companies, there should be a focus on the similarities between tech platforms and newspapers, which can be held liable. As was seen in Sarah Palin's failed defamation suit against the New York Times in 2020, it's very difficult to sue media publishers, though not impossible. Tech companies should be held to the same standard. Repealing Section 230 would allow them to retain most of the protections they've held for the past 30 years, while also protecting victims, companies, and viewpoint diversity. Oh, 
Also, shouldn't a 1996 communication law be updated? I think we made a little progress since then on the internet. Well, we haven't even updated the Constitution. We're still talking about that. So let's oh, not darn. talk about 96 yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you talking about 1796? I think that's. that's oh, what yeah, 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 right? yeah. That's yeah. what I meant. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> A telecom giant will cut 55,000 jobs by 2030. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, BBC News, Business Insider, and Forbes. The UK's largest broadband and mobile provider, BT Group, has said that it will cut up to 55,000 jobs, potentially more than 40% of its workforce, by 2030 as it completes its fiber network rollout and adapts to emerging technologies like artificial intelligence. BT currently employs roughly 130,000 staff globally and 80,000 in the UK alone, with approximately 30,000 of them being contractors. The company added that 10,000 of those laid off will be replaced by AI. As the broadband provider switches its network from copper to fiber, it won't need as many staff to build and maintain its networks, and it projects that AI will take over customer service jobs. While CEO Philip Jansen said that people will no longer feel like they're dealing with a robot and they're not planning on changing their 450 stores, the Communication Workers Union said the job cuts were no surprise. Though BT shares were down 8% in early trading, it said its target revenue for the fiscal year 2024 is in line with its outlook. This announcement came just days after BT's rival, Vodafone, announced it was planning to cut 11,000 jobs over the next three years. Vodafone cited efforts to remain competitive as it negotiates a potential merger with another British telecom operator as the reason for the cuts. The Spectator brings us Narrative A. While it seems scary, the replacement of human workers with AI is nothing to be scared of. BT will replace some humans with computers. But BT says it will use AI for mundane jobs such as detecting software bugs and fixing them. Just as machines replace people in plowing farms and assembling widgets in factories, this too will lead to the emergence of new advanced jobs for people to take up while computers are in charge of the grunt work. And Narrative B comes from The Atlantic. The AI revolution is not like the industrial or tech revolutions of the past, and governments should be prepared to deal with the reality. If 300 million jobs are replaced in the coming decade, as Goldman Sachs predicts, and there's no way to stop it, then our leaders should work to ensure those at the bottom get a piece of the financial boom. AI may very well take away employment, but it shouldn't take away livelihoods and the human experience we all deserve. God, have you ever worked a customer service phone job but been on the other end of it? Not where it's just like that's your job is to it's sit down. It's the worst. It yeah. sucks. And it never ends. Like there's always just like a what they would call a queue. Like you press a button. It's like eight calls in the queue. Like, ugh. You know, like, yeah. this is the worst. And when I worked, it was hard to justify not picking up the next call if there was someone on hold. Right. And uh, so you would like, it's like, okay. I am going, uh, I see that the person next to me is about to finish. There's one call in the queue. I'll let, I'm going to drag my feet slightly on hanging up. They'll get the next call and then I can hang up. And then rarely does it work up. out though. Yeah. yeah rarely does it work always, out. Oh, yeah. Man. And then, then you'll get the, the worst call in the world happens to be the one that now you've lined yourself up for later. It's right. horrible. It's just a horrible <laughs> job. And I'm so sorry, everybody. And in this, in the day of podcasts, you can't, 
listen to one while you're working. Like, you know, if you, if, if you and I worked in a, a factory or, 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 a, a, you know, Amazon warehouse, you can at least listen to podcasts. Yeah. You're on the phone. You cannot listen to a, to stuff to entertain you. You can't do yeah. anything. It's the worst. Not stimulating enough. It's like a limbo, right? It's not stimulating a- enough to right. be fulfilling, and uh, and it is occupying enough that you can't right. do anything your, else. Your ears need to be active. Like that's the one thing yeah. you need is your ears. Like so. maybe you could have a a walking treadmill underneath. <laughs> like that's that, that would the be kind of cool. Not that yeah. they would allow that, but uh, they definitely you know. not where I worked. It was no. a lot of. It wasn't good. It was, yeah. I am. Let me let me put it this way. I'm very happy to be doing this podcast with you right now, Melissa. <laughs> and I am too. And you know what? These people are going to be grateful in the end when they're like, "Oh yeah, that job was absolute garbage." Yeah. I'm going to do something I want with silver lining. Whoever, silver lining. Whoever thought it was a good idea to keep softening the blow by saying, "But it's okay. You're going to be replaced by AI." Like that. They didn't do it right. That doesn't. That doesn't. That doesn't help me. Yeah. Uh, no. I don't think all. that's comforting at all. No. Like, it, if they told me, you know, uh, I've already dealt with this of like, oh, robots are going to replace me. No, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not. That at the very least, it's a it's a lateral move. It doesn't help me at all. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, got to give those people an education now, and doesn't seem like we got a good pipeline for that going. No, we don't. We've replaced all teachers with AI too. Sorry. <laughs> and all students. And also, right, you just replace everything. Yes, <laughs> great. A report claims DeSantis will enter the 2024 presidential race next week. Here the facts as agreed upon by 538, BBC News, Wall Street Journal, CNN, Forbes, and Bloomberg. Next week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will reportedly file formal paperwork with the Federal Election Commission, declaring his much-anticipated candidacy for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. This comes as rumors about an upcoming announcement have circulated after his financial backers were invited to a meeting in Miami on May 24th through the 25th, with donors expecting to be involved in fundraising calls on behalf of the campaign. A soft launch is likely to take place as early as Wednesday, with a formal announcement expected the following week in his hometown of Dundin. The planning, however, could remain a moving target as DeSantis is known for last-minute changes. Recently, DeSantis has intensified public appearances with several bill-signing ceremonies in Florida and national travel stops. He also garnered key endorsements, including from former Trump advisor Steve Cortez. The potential presidential contender on Wednesday signed into law bills to fight the so-called woke indoctrination, including banning children from undergoing transgender medical treatments or entering drag shows, and also focused on preferred pronoun use in schools. As of Thursday, 538's national polling average for the 2024 GOP presidential primary shows that DeSantis is trailing frontrunner former President Donald Trump by about 32 points. They are the only candidates to receive double-digit support from primary voters so far. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins. We'll start with a pro-Trump narrative from InfoWars. Republicans mustn't be fooled into voting for DeSantis. He's a deep state puppet who's attempting to integrate the MAGA movement back into the GOP establishment to restore the Bush dynasty. It's outrageous that someone who endorsed the Russia collusion hoax since day one is now running on an America First platform. It should also be remembered how much DeSantis was dependent on Trump for his Florida re-election success. And the anti-Trump narrative from Newsweek. 
The donor class within the GOP is looking to pass the torch to the more stable Ron DeSantis while still capturing the support of the MAGA base. After three successive losses, it's time for Republicans to pivot to winning candidates, and Ron DeSantis is the most captivating politician to challenge Biden in 2024. Here's a Democratic narrative from MSNBC. Ironically, Trump seems to need DeSantis in the GOP primaries to galvanize and re-energize MAGA rhetoric. Democrats should be cautious about relishing the forthcoming boxing match on the GOP side. Both Trump and DeSantis have dangerous authoritarian impulses that President Biden will need to contend with. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's a 28% chance that Ron DeSantis will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. I have a Duned In Gold membership, actually. You know, I want to make sure I, <laughs> make sure that I, you know, can see who searches my Duned In profile. You know, that's very important to me. Yeah. You want to know which sand creature hired yeah, you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. In our next story, global warming is set to break the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit by 2027. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg Law, BBC News, Global Citizen, New York Times, and the Evening Standard. According to a new report by the World Meteorological Organization, there is a 66% chance that the world will breach the 1.5 degrees Celsius global warming limit before 2027, and research suggests with increasing frequency in the years afterwards. The El Nino pattern developing toward the end of this year, along with an increase in human-caused emissions, are likely to fuel the rise in global temperatures, which scientists predict will be temporary. The report, titled Global Annual to Decade Climate Update, warns that there is a 98% chance at least one of the next five years will be the hottest on record. A previous report published in March by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, predicted that the world would bypass the critical 1.5 degrees Celsius warming limit during the first half of the 2030s. Scientists believe increased greenhouse gas emissions have steadily increased global warming to more than 1 degree Celsius since the 19th century, with temperatures rising by about 0.2% Celsius per decade. At the current rate, the IPCC warns that temperatures could exceed 2 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, posing serious threats to human and animal populations. Washington Post brings us Narrative A. While we are likely to breach the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming limit, it would be dangerous to encourage public fear or despair over such a development, as one or even a few years over 1.5 degrees Celsius would not be the end of the world. Painting it as such would make it politically impossible to combat the real climate threat, prolonged periods of more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, or worse, permanency at those temperatures. There's no need to panic, as doomsayers have unsuccessfully predicted climate disasters for decades. The Guardian brings us Narrative B. Humans have failed our planet and are continuing to fail our future generations. The truth is that we either stop our greenhouse gas emissions or we let the planet disintegrate. We are facing a climate emergency, and if we choose to continue on this path, it is inevitable that humankind will be forced to adjust to a new, catastrophic form of normality. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there is a 20% chance that there will be at least 3.6 degrees Celsius of global warming by the year 2100. 
I just got new prescription sunglasses, just apropos of nothing. <laughs> hey, you might need them. Yeah. Yeah. I like polarized sunglasses. Oh, yeah. Those are the bomb. Yeah. So you yeah. don't, they don't have to be that dark to still not have your eyes be blown out, which I like. Yeah. Those are great. I, I think I'm going to upgrade me to a, a pair of polarized Nice yeah. sunglasses, like the not $6 versions. Right. It's, it is a debacle to lose your expensive sunglasses, though. Yeah. But as a gla- I'm a glasses wearer, so I, you know, the only option for sunglasses is to get prescription sunglasses. So, yeah. But, but you will, le- as a glasses wearer, I wear glasses all the time, and then you end up leaving your sunglasses somewhere, and then that's the worst. Oh, you got to get the transition lenses. No, I don't like that because then. But like if you're sitting next to a window inside, you're using the computer, your glasses will turn dark while you're trying right. to use the computer. So that's that's, that's a good point. Yeah. My yeah. my biggest issue was on camera. They were like, we want you to wear the glasses. I was like, will they Oh, transition? yeah. Mirror sunglasses are a no-go in, uh, in, in, in show business, in this business of show. That's right. Our final story, an HIV prevention drug is to be made in South Africa. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, News 24, UN News, and The Guardian. The Indian drug company Cipla has confirmed that an affordable generic version of its HIV drug Cabotegravir will be manufactured in South Africa for the first time. The twice-monthly jab is expected to lower the risk of contraction for millions of at-risk Africans. The announcement comes a year after the UN's Unitaid announced the rollout of an HIV prevention injection pilot program to provide long-lasting protection to transgender communities in Brazil and to young girls and women in South Africa. In June 2022, the World Health Organization advised African nations to begin approving injectable prevention drugs as the agency observed an increase in global infections. In October 2022, Zimbabwe became the first country on the continent to approve injectable pre-exposure prophylaxis. Meanwhile, in November 2022, Botswana approved the use of injectable antiretroviral as a treatment for and prevention of HIV. Previous methods included a daily dose of oral medication, which left users vulnerable to missing doses and thus contracting HIV. The named brand of Cabrotegavir costs $3,500 in the U.S. per injection, making it too costly for African countries to purchase, though the generic version to be manufactured in South Africa is expected to be much more affordable for African governments. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on our final story. We'll begin this round of spins with Narrative A from BBC. In the current upside-down world we live in, poor African countries pay up to 30 times the amount for life-saving medicine than wealthy nations like the U.S. and U.K. This is in part due to the continent's history of purchasing new drugs instead of repurposed ones, but that doesn't mean international bodies can't step in to help. To avoid corrupt price gouging, the global community must cooperate with the aim of providing the best medicines at the lowest cost for poor to medium-income nations. And the National Center for Biotechnology Information's National Library of Medicine brings us Narrative B. The COVID pandemic showed how dangerous relying on other countries for medical aid can be, which is why Africa needs a new public health order. Alongside its increased vulnerability from a lack of funding and purchasing power, it also faces hoarding of vital medications by wealthy nations and growing vaccine nationalism. Africa must strengthen public health institutions, increase investments in its health care, and prioritize training for the next generation of health care workers. 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, May 19th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers to figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.